Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Often cultural touchstones don't appear until you're looking in the rearview mirror. The early days of something big may not feel particularly notable, and people who are there in those early days may not understand the significance of their decisions until much later. Which is why a lunch about 25 years ago at a restaurant in New York did not seem too important to Sarah Moulton. At the time of the lunch, Moulton was in her early 40s. She'd already had a pretty impressive career, most famously as an assistant to the TV chef Julia Child. But being on TV, she knew that was not for her. You know, I had nothing against Julia doing it. I thought she, of course, was fantastic. But I thought, you know, people who want to be on TV need too much attention. Uh, You know, they're sort of, look at me, look at me. Uh, And that's just not who I am. At the lunch, Moulton talked with an executive named Ree Schoenfeld, a giant in a field that was about to explode, cable television. Schoenfeld had helped Ted Turner launch a little network called CNN, and he smelled money in a new venture, an all-food network. Moulton, though, had a few questions. Really? How are they going to fill 24 hours, and mm-hmm. who's going to do it? And Schoenfeld, I should say, knew nothing whatsoever about cooking. In fact, he didn't even have a kitchen in his apartment in New York. That's how little he cared about food. Alan Salkin is a former reporter for The New York Times, and he's the author of the book From Scratch, Inside the Food Network. He notes that Schoenfeld and his wife had actually had the kitchen removed from their home. They were great New Yorkers. They did um, have a a coffee maker, because some things are really too important to leave to chance. And Salkin says many thought Schoenfeld was on a doomed mission, that a network all about food was destined to fail. Food was something that was on public television, mostly produced out of WGBH in Boston, and that there was no actual money to be made. This was, um, you know, shows like obviously Julia Child, The Frugal Gourmet, Yan Can Cook that were, you know, popular on weekend mornings. Some of them run it, ran at night here and there. But nobody had actually made any money off of it except maybe the stars who were able to sell a few cookbooks. It was not a viable business. At the time of his lunch with Sarah Moulton, it's likely that Schoenfeld could never have anticipated the strange cultural phenomenon that his network would turn out to be, and the way in which it would affect how Americans ate and maybe how they cooked. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, though, back to the lunch. So Moulton is sitting there at this fancy restaurant, which she remembers as specializing in cheese, and the executives offer her a job, head of the kitchens at this new food network thing, but no benefits. Well, Moulton needed benefits, so she turned them down. They made another job offer, which she also rejected. And then they said, OK, how about being on a show? That caught Moulton's attention. She had just done her first on-air segment on Good Morning America, and it had gone great. So she figured, sure, why not? She'd do a screen test. So I did asparagus vinaigrette, sole manier. I don't really remember what I made for dessert because it was so stressful. I was Mm. so bad. Um, It's just so different to be alone in front of the cameras. And I said everything I wanted to. I cooked everything I was supposed to. I got it done in 15 minutes. But I never once smiled. And my hands never stopped shaking. Mm. So when I held up the asparagus to show what a good asparagus should look like, as opposed to a floppy one, even the straight one was shaking. <laughs> and so I walked out of there. I said, OK, what the heck, what the hey? I didn't really want to do that anyway. But as Moulton herself admits, the executives were desperate, and she ended up on air. 
She had to stand on a riser because she was short. She had to pretend there was an oven in the kitchen, but there really wasn't, so people had to sit under the counter and hand her finished dishes. She had a day job with benefits and would dash over to cook on TV at night. And the show took phone calls, which occasionally would be obscene. The whole operation in those early days was kind of a wreck, says journalist Alan Salkin. And Julia Child, of all people, was brought in as a consultant. So she would show up, you know, now and then at this channel, which was actually located near the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel uh, in New York, which in that era, um, you know, you might watch a certain HBO show about the start of the adult film industry to understand the kind of um, ladies of the night who were circling around the entrance to the Food Network that Julia Child came to know every time she would arrive uh, and walk up the stairs and say, hello, ladies. Still, despite the unusual geography of the Food Network and the disorder that Sarah Moulton was witnessing behind the scenes, there was another side to this coin, which Moulton quickly started to pick up on. I'm getting recognized everywhere. You know, it was one of those situations where, you know, I started thinking, oh, geez, I need to wear makeup walking down the street because people will be horrified when they see what I actually look like. I mean, don't get me wrong. I never wore makeup as a chef. I didn't think it was important. But then I I realized that people gotten so used to the way I looked on TV that maybe I need to walk around in public like that. But if that many people were recognizing me, wow, people were watching. The seeds of something huge had been planted. Moulton sensed it, and others must have too. And those seeds were taking root, even though, as Salkin notes, the network was limping along. There was something called the no-stopping rule. They simply wanted to shoot half-hour shows straight into the can Mm. because they couldn't afford to edit them. So no matter what would happen, they would just keep rolling. It was a few years later that uh, Mario Batali made his first show and uh, ended up cutting his hand, and they just wouldn't stop. And so he had to, you know, wrap his hand in a towel and lean on it and then just keep uh, stirring with the other hand. They were that stretched for cash that he cut his hand and they would not stop. The Food Network didn't actually make money uh, for its first 10 years. When Reese started it, he came up with this business plan in which the cable companies would not pay subscriber fees to the network. They felt that the only way that the network could get carried on cable TV across the country was if it was given to the cable companies for free. Hmm. So the idea was they would make money just from advertising. Now, this plan didn't actually work, and it it took about 10 years until that expired for the Food Network to start to get subscriber fees. Hmm. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that in these early days, you you talked about Julia Child was sort of around and about, um, but didn't have her own show, is that they thought... If we can just get famous people on, and and one example here is Debbie Fields, who was famous as Mrs. Fields, like the, the head of a cookie empire, um, that if we can just get famous chefs on and put a camera on them, everything will work out. And it turned out that was wrong. Uh, why was it wrong? The idea that just throwing famous people on television would work was crazy because it's actually very hard to cook and be on television at the same time. Almost everybody who does it the first time ends up cutting themselves because you're trying to look look at the camera and smile and do stuff with your hands and tell stories 
And it's actually a very rare skill. There's a couple up in um, Massachusetts named Lou and Lisa Eckes who became the ones that they would send chefs to to train them how to be on television. And they would do things like tape uh, a picture of your dog to the camera and just say, talk to the dog in order to calm people down. It's, it's actually a very complicated skill that not everybody is good at. Hmm. So talk a little bit about Emeril Lagasse. Um, he, in some ways, was like this breakthrough talent. It's I would say for the for the Food Network, he yeah. was he was a good chef. So you know he was not an actor or anything. And at least at the beginning, he was really somebody who worked on on television. How'd they find him, and and how'd that work out? Well, Emeril was thrown onto TV on a show that was really beneath him at first. It was called How to Boil Water. And literally the first episode was put water in pot, turn on stove, (laughs) make sure that flame is actually coming out because there's something called the pilot light on your stove. And this really fit in with Reese Schoenfeld's you know, vision that there were divorced, newly divorced men out there who literally did not know how to boil water. I was going to say, it, it seems to fit into Rhys Schoenfeld's uh, life, too. Like, this is the guy who doesn't have a kitchen. It seems just about... No, I don't know that Rhys knew how to boil okay. water. Um, and he, he never had to. You know, all he had to do was start cable channels. Other people were supposed to boil water for him. So this was beneath Emerald because he was already a, a well-decorated chef you know, Emeril was one of the great chefs of the 80s. And also during that time, he met a guy named Shep Gordon. There's a, a great documentary right. about him made by Mike Myers called Supermensch. And Chef was, Shep was the one who came up with the idea that chefs are like rock stars and that they should be branded. So Shep started representing Emeril. So as Emeril got better and better on camera... And they gave him better shows after um, How to Boil Water because it was really beneath him. He then did a show called Essence of Emerald. And then it was finally uh, Emerald Live in which he really came into his own. See, everybody's got one of those comfort foods. I actually have several. (laughs) Depending on what kind of comforting I need at the time, you know? Like, you know, when I'm feeling achy or it's cold outside, I love making kicked up hot chocolate. So I'm going to make a kicked-up hot chocolate for you tonight. He became the signature star of the early days of Food Mm -hmm. Network. He would throw garlic and hot sauce onto stuff. He was yelling, bam! I remember Um, it. I remember it. Yes, and and that became, it was on almost every night. It wasn't actually live. It was taped. He had a band. It was like The Tonight Show, and it was this weirdly exciting kind of programming that was centered around food. And it really was that show that young people started to watch. And a lot of uh, kids who were at home watching Emerald Live and getting excited about food and music and yelling and hot stuff and garlic are the ones who are now running some of the best restaurants in America. Hmm. There's a, a scene that you talk about that I love where Emerald gets out of a car to do, um, I think he's going to do like a live taping of his show um, in front of a studio audience. And there are people like, he gets out of the car and he sees people lined up down the block, parents and these little kids. And somebody around him is like, oh my gosh, like why are parents bringing little kids to this? They're going to be screaming and they're going to be crying and this is going to be a disaster and it's live. 
And he finds out that it wasn't the parents who brought the kids. It was the kids who brought the parents. Well, you know what? That's In fact, that's my story. You know, I, I uh, grew up in a house where my mom was not a very good cook. My dad would cook like twice a year, you know, for holidays, <laughs> making basically like, you know, potato pancakes. And, uh, you know, I didn't know that good food could be cooked in your house, basically. So when I saw the Frugal Gourmet on PBS making, you know, these delicious recipes from around the world, um, I got super excited. And it led me into this world, ultimately, of writing about food and media. So this is what happened. A lot of kids were at home and they weren't beholden to the normal television networks. They were clicking around after <laughs> school and they found things like Emerald Live and then Sarah Moulton on Cooking Live, uh, who was really teaching them knife skills. In, in my house, we didn't even have a chef's knife. We didn't know there was such a thing as a chef's knife. <laughs> You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Alan Salkin, author of the book From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. So there was an article, and I still remember – I remember reading it when it came out, and I remember it to this day. It was um, in 2009, and it was the food writer Michael Pollan wrote this big New York Times magazine article. And I'm going to quote you a little bit from it. And he said, quote, here's what I don't get. How is it that we are so eager to watch other people browning beef cubes on screen, but so much less eager to brown them ourselves? And, and Pollan also said that the rise of celebrity chefs has, quote, paradoxically coincided with the rise of fast food, home meal replacements, and the decline and fall of everyday home cooking. Alan Salkin, is it a paradox or does it like somehow make total and complete sense to you what has happened? Kara, there's something um, also on cable and on the internet called pornography. And generally what's happening in pornography is that what's happening on the screen is a lot more exciting than what's happening in your own house. Mm -hmm. So that is also true about cooking on television. Generally, now the televisions are so big that it almost looks like you're looking at your own kitchen. It's high def. It's like a window, mm -hmm. except the kitchen is probably neater than your own kitchen, more updated. And the person cooking is probably more beautiful than the person <laughs> cooking in your own kitchen. And the food that's being produced is probably more beautiful than anything you can imagine mm -hmm. producing. So there's a lot of people who would sit at home eating a handful of Doritos, imagining that they were eating, you know, uh, chicken a la king or whatever you can imagine right. them cooking on television. Right. So I, I think the general knowledge about food is way higher than it used to be. That's why restaurant menus uh, read like novels now. The descriptions of the food, you know, has to be in-depth. The waiters all have to be able to answer the sourcing of the food. What farm is it from? Um, and so people are more discriminating about what they eat, but there's almost something scary about trying to reproduce it in your house. Mm. Um, it's also – there's also – I wrote a piece recently for BuzzFeed um, that it turns out that watching – if you watch food on TV, you're more likely to eat a higher calorie meal right after watching it. So – in, despite the chefs all telling us to eat healthy, et cetera, we're more listening to the chefs who are telling us to eat butter and to enjoy ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say being a fairly big watcher of the Food Network, I don't think they mostly are telling us to eat healthy. I mean, I think that the things that are popular, 
from cake competitions to Iron Chef or what it's mostly about winning or producing something you think you would like to eat. It's not really about um keeping you as a person healthy, even if that means like a little less butter. The job of Food Network is not to teach us how to cook well or to cook healthy. The job of Food Network is to sell washing machines Mm -hmm. and Priuses. (laughs) They are in the business of entertaining us and selling us products. They don't, I'm sorry to tell people, they don't actually care how we eat. Finally, um, let me ask you about the future. Um, What do you think, the Food Network is now in this universe I mean, ironically, it was born and it was dreamt up because there were going to be so many channels through which people could get information. Well, now there are so many more channels uh, than there were 25 years ago through which people can get information. Um, and it has to compete with people cooking on YouTube and, um, you know, people seeing little cute, highly produced videos of recipes on Facebook. Um what do you where do you see the Food Network going and what are the challenges from here? It's very easy to predict what's going to happen with food television and the Food Network. All you got to do is look at music. Okay, music, pop music, rock and roll music had its peak in its era. And the classic rock era of the 60s and 70s, those bands, there no one's creating a new, you know, Beatles or Led Zeppelin or whoever. Um, you know, or Neil Young, these are the ones who are still dominating. And that's what happened with food stars. There was an era in which the classic food stars were created. And where are we with music now? There's all kinds of streaming services. You can listen to anything you want. There are stars at various levels, but there's no mega, mega stars who can sell out stadiums, maybe a few, you know, Beyonce um, and and that level. Mm -hmm. But it's very, very hard to get into that pantheon now. Mm -hmm. But what's good good news is you can listen to anything you want wherever you want. And that's what's happening with food. There's Food Network's dominance over the culture is not going to come back any more than there's going to be a band like the Beatles that dominates pop music. It's just going to be this diverse array of content that we can access whenever we want. And hopefully through word of mouth or other means, we can be directed towards things that really interest us. Alan Salkin is a former reporter for The New York Times. He's the author of the book, From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. Alan, thank you so much. This is great, Kara. Thank you. Celebrity chef Sarah Moulton, who talked about her nervousness on TV earlier, said that the Food Network and the whole food scene in general has changed drastically when it comes to gender. We will have a story from Moulton on how male chefs were prioritized in the early days of the Food Network that's on our website, innovationhub.org. 